You're listening to a sermon given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 21st, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. This morning's passage comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 19. But what shall I compare to this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and we say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and we say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Amen. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Thank you, sweetheart. That was my Father's Day present. That was my baby. This is going by quick. Looking at her, I'm like, wow, you're already up there doing that. That's crazy. We are continuing in our journey this morning through the parables of Jesus. Thankfully, I don't need that, so I'm going to move that out of my way. There was a time when I did. Um, We are continuing in our journey through the parables of Jesus this summer. And one scholar, in, in reflecting on the parables, said that the parables that Jesus taught are timeless and universal. Throughout the centuries, they have addressed and continue to address people of all ages, of all nationalities and races. In their crispness, they sparkle. They're novel, pertinent, and always exhibit inherent power. That is the reality that we're going to be coming to terms with week after week as we continue to look at Jesus' parables in all of their various forms. Parables come in many different sizes and structures. There are parables that we're pretty familiar with, longer stories like the story of the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son. And then there are what are known as parabolic sayings, things like you are the salt of the earth. All of them fall into the category of the parabolic teachings of Jesus. And we're going to consider all all of the different types and all the different styles as we go through it. And more often than not, whether they're long or short, they are something that's taken from the everyday reality of people's lives. Things that people would readily understand as they listen to Jesus. Things and images they would have been familiar with. Just like this morning's parable, it's one that people will read, often skip over, but when you slow down, the the similarity to what he's talking about here is something you and I, even today, are familiar with. If you have children, you've seen it a million times. If you don't have children, you probably remember it from when you were a child. Kids will get together, and when kids get together, they want to play games. And when kids want to play games, generally someone begins to decide what game they're going to play. And someone decides this is the game we're going to play, and someone else decides, I don't want to play that game. So they say, let's play this game, and then someone else says, I don't want to play that game. And so what happens? Unwilling to be satisfied, a child will usually pick up their stuff, pack up their ball, and and go home. They're just not willing to be pleased with any option. Why? Why? Well, that's what Jesus is going to unpack in this story. And the why behind the story is as real for us today as it was for Jesus then. But to fully grasp the the impact of the parable, we need to see it in all of its context. 
This parable falls in the middle of Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus is dealing with the ministry of John the baptizer. And this story in particular comes as part of Jesus' response to John's disciples and to the crowds that were around him in a response to a question, to a doubt that John had about Jesus. You may remember John had been thrown into prison at this point. Back in Matthew chapter 4, you can go read about it later on this week, you'll find that John has been in prison for a while. And in Matthew chapter 14, we find out why he ended up in prison. But by this time, he's been there for a little while, and he's confused. He's a bit perplexed. Humanly speaking, emotionally speaking, we can understand why he might feel this way. I mean, what's going on? What's Jesus doing? Why am I still in here? So, John sends some of his disciples to Jesus. See, John was still in touch with his disciples, and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask a question. You see it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. He asks him, are you the one who is to come, or, or shall we look for another? And so chapter 11 is really Jesus' response to John's disciples and then to the crowds who had gathered around him. And one of the, the most impactful moments in this answer comes in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11 where Jesus says, truly I say to you, looking at the crowds now, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a statement. Up to that point, we're talking Moses, we're talking Abraham, we're talking David, we're talking Elijah, we're talking Elisha, some pretty outstanding patriarchs, men of the faith. And Jesus says, amongst all who have been born of women, no one's been greater than John. Well, it's not because John was a better leader than David or a better leader than Moses or a better man than Abraham. It's because in God's wise providence, it was to John that God gave the responsibility to point most directly to his son. In God's providence, it was John's calling to direct the eyes, the hearts, and the attention of people to Jesus right there with them. But then Jesus says something else very astounding, if we'll just sit on it for a second. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than even John. What Jesus is saying is that the least in the kingdom, you and I on this side of the cross, the least of us in the kingdom of God can point to the truth and reality of Jesus in some ways with better clarity than even John could in his day. It's by virtue of our faith in Christ and our position of abiding in him that on this side of the cross, maybe you've only known Jesus for a day, two days, two weeks, but you can point to things that are very clear and very true about him in a way that John couldn't even fathom. This greatness that Jesus is talking about is is bound up in our knowledge of Christ and our ability to make him known. Because we live on this side of the cross, we have a greater clarity and and immediacy than everyone who came before. That's why the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than even John. You and I as Jesus' disciples today have an unimaginably great privilege. But not everyone then and not everyone now wants to hear about it. That's what actually gets to the parable. Jesus continues in verse 16, having said that, but to what shall I compare this generation? 
Now Jesus, in one sense, is speaking immediately to the generation of Israelites that were there in his day. And in one sense, there's an immediacy to what he's saying. But in another sense, as you understand this particular phrase, there's a timelessness to Jesus' words. In fact, the the phrasing Jesus uses uses here to speak about this generation is a phrasing that's very common in Luke's recordings of Jesus' message. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus called the generation around him an unbelieving and perverted generation. In Luke 11, chapter chapter 11, verse 29, he called him a wicked generation. In chapter 11, verse 50, he said, on this generation, the blood of the prophets rests. And in his own ministry, he said he was going to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. When Jesus says, to what shall I compare this generation? In his mind, this generation carries the tone of a people who are faithless. And in that sense, it can apply to any generation that's equally as obstinate and faithless who have the same response to Jesus and his message as those of his day did. So this is how Jesus begins to unpack what he's trying to say. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. These, this generation is... It's like children sitting in the marketplace, go back a verse, and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance, and we sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. And so to catch the thrust for this generation of Jesus' day and the eternality of what he's saying, you've got to get the picture in your mind. In his day, in the middle of every town and in the middle of every village would have been a marketplace. In the Greek, you'll see it in the book of Acts referred to a few times as an agora, a marketplace. It was where men and women, families would come, tradesmen would come, they would set up booths in the middle of the city and they would sell their goods and sell their wares and trade the food and trade the stuff. And as mom and dad were working, as older brothers and sisters were working, little children would all gather there because everybody was there and they would do what children always do. They would play. They'd come up with games to play. And when the market wasn't happening, That entire space was a big open space. So what would children do throughout the day? They would go gather in the middle of that space and they would play games. And the games that Jesus is suggesting here are games that are going to sound a little strange to you and I, but they were games that were very common to children in his day. He's talking about kids getting together and choosing to play between, choosing between the two games of a wedding and a funeral. We don't play wedding game and we don't play funeral game very often, but they did then. Because in their day, these were the two largest, most um, spectacular events that would occur in their village. A wedding could last up to seven days, full of feasting, full of dancing, full of celebrating. So kids get together and they say, we'll play the flute. We'll play the wedding songs. Who's going to be the groom? Who's going to be the bride? Who's going to be the family? Who's going to do this? Let's play this game. Some kid decides, I don't want to play a wedding game. That's stupid. Okay. We're going to play the funeral game. That's a weird one too, though. But a funeral was just as big a spectacle in their day as a wedding was. These are things the kids are very familiar with. And the funeral of Jesus' day, if you were with us during the summer a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about a story of a funeral. A funeral, was, a funeral was just as much of an event as a wedding. There was music. It was just usually in minor keys. There was a lot of feasting, a lot of food. There were a lot of people that were involved. 
There were people who would wail and who would cry. There were people who were paid to be professional mourners and wailers and weepers in funerals. So, okay, you don't want to play wedding? Fine. We'll play dirgy music over here, minor keys. Who's going to be the dead person? Who's going to be the pallbearer? Who are going to be the wailers and the criers? I don't want to play that game either. And so instead of playing either game, they just pack their stuff up and go home. Nothing could satisfy them. With every suggestion that would come, there was always a problem and an unwillingness to find contentment. Jesus said, this generation, it's unwilling to be satisfied. And we read the stories and we think about our own lives and what Jesus is portraying here, and we all know why. Because we do the same thing as adults even now. I mean, why is a child going out with his friends unwilling to actually engage in the game and the fun that everyone else is playing in? The game they wanted to play yesterday. The game they've wanted to play every single day of the week. Why all of a sudden is a child unwilling to be satisfied, unwilling to engage and enjoy? It's because that game wasn't their idea. Things aren't going their way. And so they convinced themselves in the end that they didn't want to play at all. They're willing to not have fun and convince themselves they don't want to have fun because the idea that's being presented wasn't theirs. It's all about control. It's not that the children in the story don't like the wedding game. It's not that they don't like the happy songs. It's not that they don't like playing the funeral game. It's that it was their idea and not mine. And the real reason they're unwilling to be satisfied is because they want to be in control. You and I know exactly what that's like. And the direction that Jesus is taking those who will hear is simply this. Receiving him, receiving Jesus, receiving the gospel and his kingdom involves relinquishing your control. Here's how Jesus begins to unpack and apply the parable. I already read it, but we'll look at it again. John came neither eating nor drinking, and and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, historically, there have been two primary ways the church has has sought to interpret this parable. This has been a difficult one for the church. It's not super detailed. You kind of have to understand the context of where he is when he's saying it and who he's talking to. And there have been two primary ways the church historically has, has tried to understand the parable. And I think one is more contextually accurate than the other. They both say true things, But I think one gets a bit closer to the intention that Jesus had when he told the story. But let me just show you the first one because I think it carries carries something that is true and and it makes sense. And maybe in eternity I'll be proven to have been wrong to side with the other one. The early church scholars would read this parable and, and they would interpret Jesus saying that this present generation, this unwilling to be satisfied generation, it's actually the children in the marketplace that are calling out the games to be played. They're the ones saying, hey, we want to play wedding. And they're the ones saying, okay, we want to play funeral. And Jesus and John are the ones saying, no, I don't want to do that. 
the culture or the generation, everyone around them saying, Jesus, I want you to play this. And he says, no, I don't want to do that. Well, we'll play this over here then. We want you to do this. And he and John say, no, I don't want to do that either. And for centuries, the early church interpreted the parable this way, and I think there's truth to it. Jesus, they would say, was not going to conform to the expectations that the world and the generation around him had. Expectations of him that demanded something of his person, of his message, and of his mission. Support for this interpretation would come in the stories of how even Jesus' own family, his disciples, those closest to him who would travel with him, had a particular expectation that Jesus was going to be this great political leader. This one who was going to lead God's people finally into triumph over their oppressors. Multiple times they even tried to take him, to pull him away, to make him king. This is who we need you to be, who we want you to be. This is our expectation of you. This is what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to live, and what you're supposed to say. And the early church would interpret this and say, well, Jesus is not going to conform to that. He has a mission. He was very clear. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm not going to dance to your tune. I'm not going to conform to your expectations. My disciples... They're not going to dance at your whim. See, Jesus in his entire ministry would clearly lay out the expectations that God would have for those who would live in his kingdom and for who would receive him as king. And so the early church would draw support for this particular interpretation, even from the New Testament letters of of Paul, where Paul will write in his second letter to Timothy in chapter four and say, a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I mean, that is a picture, a timeless picture of the generation that Jesus is speaking of. A generation that will always exist until Jesus returns. Family, this is the reality of the generation in which we even live. The generation you and I, by Jesus, are called to live as salt amongst. It's a generation that desperately wants Jesus to conform, to fit into their image and expectation of him, to say what they want him to say to the things they want him to say them to, and to act the way they want him to act. By any means necessary, they want to put pressure on Jesus and his disciples to conform. Through anger, through shame, through guilt, any means necessary that it will take. And if he doesn't, if Jesus doesn't conform, if his disciples don't conform, they get canceled. I mean, this is the origin of cancel culture right here. That's what Jesus is talking about. I mean, the last handful of years, not even the last handful of weeks, it's it's been the last handful of years the nature of our our current public discourse, politics and culture, has been one of play our game the way we want it played or we're gonna pick up our ball and go home. And it's on both sides. Both sides of the political and ideological spectrum. In fact, New York Times writer Tim Kreider, just a year and a half ago, he wrote about this, and he's the one that they actually give the credit to popularizing the term culture of outrage. But he wrote an article for the New York Times about this, this nature that has grown up in our society, this us-against-them culture. He actually calls it outrage porn. There's an intoxicating feeling that people are having by being constantly on the lookout for something to be offended by. 
Why? He said, because we like to feel right. We like to feel right about what we think. And do you know what's happened? He said, it's a very perverse thing that's happened. We've started to enjoy being wronged by other people. Because then it, it reinforces our sense of being right. And then Emma Green, another writer, she writes for the Atlantic Monthly. She wrote an article called Taming Christian Rage. Why? Because the church isn't immune to the same thing. It's on both sides of the spectrum. Play the game we want it played. Conform to our particular version of expectation or we'll just cancel each other out. But Jesus and his kingdom has never been about conforming to popular expectation of him. On either end of the political or ideological or cultural spectrum. So in one sense, I'm with the historic church and how they viewed this parable. That is true. All of that is true. But I don't think it's the most contextually accurate way to understand the parable, as true as it is. So I want you to hear it because it's true and it's helpful. But there's another way to understand it. Over time, scholars began to, in a sense, switch the roles in the story, so to speak. And this, I think, better fits what Jesus was talking about. You see, John came in his ministry that God had called him to, and he came to God's people preaching a particular message. It was a message of holiness. It was a message of judgment. He had been sent by God, he said earlier in Matthew's gospel, to put an ax to the root of things. He came calling God's people to repentance. Here's a wild-eyed dude who took the most stringent of vows, a Nazarite vow. He, he lived the entirety of his life from early childhood, probably about early teens, up to the point where we meet him in the desert. He had lived it alone in the desert. And he shows up preaching this message of holiness and repentance and impending judgment. He's wearing this weird itchy camel hair robe. He's eating bugs. And guess what? God's people for a little while loved it. Man, they heard him and they flocked to him. He was doing the very thing God had called him to. He was pointing the attention in the hearts of God's people to the Messiah that had come, that God had promised. And everybody liked him for a little while until the religious leaders started going, mm, no, I'm not that bad. I don't know about what you're saying here, John. That's an offensive message. We're not that bad. Some people might be, but we're not that bad. And so they canceled John out. They said he has a demon. Done. And now the people are like, okay, I'm not supposed to listen to John. But then Jesus says, on the other hand, the Son of Man came eating and drinking and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus came and he, like John, preached a message of repentance. The kingdom of God, the long-awaited promised kingdom of God was at hand. He was present. And he preached a message of repentance, but in his preaching and in his living, he received the outcast. He received the defiled he welcomed the overlooked and the marginalized. 
He extended the eternal grace of God to those that everyone else had put to the sides. He wasn't living off in the desert alone, eating honey and bugs. He was in the boats with the people. He was in the homes with the people. He was in their villages. He was a part of their everyday life. He ate with them. He drank with them. Jesus came in in full-on wedding mode. His message of the kingdom and his message of repentance. It was like playing the flutes and dancing the wedding. So much so that John's disciples came to Jesus in chapter nine and asked why he didn't fast and why his disciples didn't fast. And they basically answered him, you don't fast at a wedding. The bridegroom is here, the Messiah is here. It's a time to celebrate. And the religious leaders looked at Jesus and his life and his message and they said, look at him, he's a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's actually in its original, it's actually worse than it sounds in English. Right there where they accuse him of being a glutton, it's not an adjective. The root of that word is a word that's connected to the idea of personhood and dignity. They're not using it like he's a gluttonous person. No, they're saying he is gluttonous. That's his nature. There's no dignity in him at all. It's worse than it even sounds. He's receiving defiled people. John, I'm not as bad as you say. Hey, I'm better than all those people. I can't, you know. You're telling me they get to get into the kingdom with me? No. Canceled. They weren't willing to be pleased by or receive Jesus and his gospel for who he is and what it is. They were looking for something to be offended by. Because if they could find it, and they will, it will only reinforce their sense of self-righteousness in their own mind. They're right. Scholar William Barclay said, the plain fact is that when people do not want to listen to the truth, they will easily enough find an excuse for not listening. People do not even try to be consistent in their criticism anymore. They'll criticize the same person and the same institution from different opposing grounds and reasons at the same time. And if people are determined to make no response, they will remain stubbornly and sullenly unresponsive no matter what the invitation is that's made to them. I'm not that bad. They're not as good as me. And the question that Jesus is asking is, are we willing to receive him and his kingdom on his terms? Are you willing to let go of the control? More specifically, are you willing to let go of your self-righteousness? You see, for the gospel to be good news, it presupposes there's indeed bad news. You are so bad. You are such a sinner. You can't even in your wildest dreams imagine a way where you can be good enough to earn your way to heaven. You desperately need a savior. You have to completely trust in someone else's work for you. Jesus came preaching the same message of repentance just like John. And they said, that's too hard. I'm not that bad. To realize that I'm that bad, it 
it requires me to lose too much control. But then when they would hear that for all who would repent and believe in Jesus, that the final determining factor in their relationship and standing with God the Father wasn't based on their past, it wasn't based on their record, but it was based on Jesus's, that for all who would receive him as king, for all who would let go of their self-righteousness, they would receive by faith in him his perfect righteousness, that they would be welcomed and accepted now and for all eternity by God the Father, that it wasn't based on them but based on Jesus. They hear it and go, huh, that's too easy. I'm not that bad, but are you saying that this person that I have in mind, the worst person in my mind, let's just go to the Bible, that thief on the cross next to Jesus, right there before his last breath, he can receive Jesus and end up in the same place as me? No. Too easy. You see, for us now and for the generation when Jesus was there and he was speaking, it's it's not about whether the gospel is too easy or too hard. It's all about whether or not you and I are willing to relinquish the control of our self-righteousness and own the fact that we're not able to save ourselves. See, in Jesus' day, it really wasn't about the form that John came preaching. It wasn't about the form that Jesus came preaching and living. You see it all the time today. They preach the same message He just talks about judgment and sin too much. Well, he just talks about grace too much. Well, you can't understand grace until you understand sin, and you can't understand the fullness of sin until you see the magnitude of the grace of God towards you. But I don't like it. He's too loud. I don't like it. He's too soft. It's not about the form. It's never been about the form. Ultimately, underneath all of that, that's just a self-righteous, prideful heart looking for something to be offended by. Underneath it all, is a problem with the content of the gospel. It was rejected not because John talked too much about holiness and repentance or Jesus was too gracious and merciful. It was rejected because it required repentance. It requires a relinquishing of the control of your own sense of righteousness. It requires a faith in Jesus and owning the fact that you're not in control. So for the Pharisees and those that were leading God's people in the day, it was just too much. They were too confident in their own self-righteousness, their own sense of just how good they really were. And I don't remember exactly, I wish I did, maybe I'll find it this week for those that are interested. I don't remember exactly where I heard this, but I had written it down in a spot on my computer where I take notes when I listen to things for future reference. But I heard Tim Keller one time talk about, tell a story of a conversation he had with a lady in New York City, someone who just came to him with some questions about the Christian faith. And I remembered it because he actually references this parable. And here's what he said. This woman came and asked him some questions that she was struggling with. And and he said, let me ask you a question. Why do people prefer a religion that is neither a dirge nor a dance? Why do people prefer religion that will not say you're a terrible sinner, but then on the other hand won't say you're utterly saved by grace? Why do people prefer a religion that will always tell you to try your best, to always be anxious, 
to never know whether or not you're being good enough, to try your best and to pray and always sort of struggle along in life, to never feel like you have this intimate relationship with God, but that you're always sort of hoping that you're in his good graces and you're good enough for him to come through for you when you need it. Why do people prefer religion? It's neither a dirge nor a dance. And then he gave us her answer. She said, well, if I'm totally saved by grace, just like you're telling me, then there's no limit to what God can ask of me. I'm letting go of the control. If my religion is try my best, and maybe God will come through for me, then that means God can't ask just anything of me. I still retain some measure of control so that if he comes through for me, I can always look back and say it was because of something that I did. It's not that you and I don't like the wedding tune of grace or the funeral tune of holiness. It's that it isn't our tune that we get to control. The gospel doesn't give us that option. See, prideful self-righteousness in all of our hearts, it's always going to be looking for something to be offended by with Jesus, and it will always find it in the gospel. Yet Jesus says, wisdom, this is how he closes the story, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Same story exists over in Luke's gospel. You can go read it over there, and and there the end is a bit different. They're translating the exact same words. They just translate it differently. It says, wisdom is proved right by all of her children. In the end, what Jesus is saying is that the wisdom of God will be justified. It will be proved right by what it produces in God's people. The wisdom of God in the gospel will be justified. It will be proved right. It will be vindicated by the impact and transformation that it makes in those who would believe it and relinquish their own self-righteousness. But here's what's really neat about it if you really read it. Here in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus personifies wisdom as a woman. And it's interesting. There's one other place in the Bible where that happens. I I don't think it's, it's by accident that this occurs. There's one other place in the Bible where wisdom is personified as a woman, and that's in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs. In particular, in Proverbs chapter 8, you'll see this, and it won't come up, just listen. In Proverbs chapter 8, it says, when God established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight. Who was God the Father's daily delight before the foundations of the earth were ever established? Who was at his side for all of eternity? John tells us in the opening line of his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word of God, the wisdom of God, the one through whom all things were created, and without him nothing was created that was ever created. Here in this story, Jesus is declaring that it's in him that the wisdom of God is found, and in him the fullness of the gospel message holds together. It's only in Jesus that the message of our sinfulness corresponds with reality. 
It's only in Jesus and the message of the gospel that the reality of our sinfulness actually comes clear. Now, philosophers have said for centuries that there are bad people. Nietzsche said it very clearly. Freud said it so eloquently. Freud actually said, some people are trash. But do you know what none of them ever said? I promise you, you'll never read it. You know what none of them ever said? They never said, I'm trash. There are some people that are bad. Oh man, just turn on your internet right now. Open up your Facebook timeline. There's some people that are bad, but who's saying I'm bad? The gospel. That's the dirge that John is playing. That's the dirge that Jesus is preaching. It's only the gospel. It's only the message of our sinfulness on one hand that anywhere comes close to corresponding with reality. You really are that bad. But for the grace of God, the things we're so quick to point out in other people are true of us. It's there. In all of us, wherever you fall on the political, cultural spectrum, the thing that you look at across the bow is resident in you. It's that bad. That is the dirge the Pharisees were unwilling to receive. Too hard, not me, I'm not like that. Jesus says, yes, you are. The gospel never says try hard enough and you might be able to earn God's favor. No, the honest news that corresponds with reality is a dirge. It's a funeral game. You are a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And so John and Jesus both call for repentance. But at the same time, it's only in Jesus, in the wisdom of God personified. It's only in the good news of the gospel that this funeral dirge is held together with this wedding celebration because only the gospel itself holds out such an optimistic fullness of joy for which you and I were created. It's only in Jesus and in the gospel that the fullness of life and joy is held out for now and eternity. There is no message as optimistic as the gospel. There is no wedding as joyful as the gospel. And it's only in Jesus that the two come together. The wisdom of God that made a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without compromising the holiness and justice of God is indeed found in Christ and no one and nothing else. Jesus is reminding his generation then and the church even now, the wisdom of God. It's it's not a formula to master. It's a person to know. And it was on the cross that the holiness of God and the love and the mercy of God weren't repelled from each other like two magnets of matching polarity and they repelled each other. No, they were held together. It's the only way to hold together the fact that we are just as wicked as we fear and we deserve the just punishment and wrath of God and yet at the same time we're valuable people of eternal and tremendous dignity and anytime you or I try to get rid of either side of that that is the opposite of wisdom it's folly it's only in Jesus most clearly seen on the cross that the two are held together It's when God the Father pours out his wrath on his only son that his holiness is satisfied in punishing sin 
And at the same time, his love magnified and pouring out grace on repentant sinners. Because now for all who would believe upon Jesus by faith, we can be saved. Friends, the Christian life begins and continues day in and day out by letting go of our self-righteousness. Recognizing we really are that bad. The dirge is not too hard. It's true. But the celebration, it's not too easy. If anything, it's merciful beyond my wildest comprehension. It starts by relinquishing the control of my righteousness at the foot of the cross. Today, tomorrow, and the next day. See, this little parable, it reminds us that there will always be generations who, who sit back and criticize Jesus and the gospel, whose hearts demand that Jesus and his church conform to their expectations, that his image and likeness conform to the image and likeness that they want to create of him, who are unwilling to receive him on his terms, and will always find something in him to be offended by. The story of this generation continues throughout the Bible and it's always referred to as an ungrateful and grumbling generation. It's one of the most consistent sins for which the people of God in the Old Testament were condemned. The sin of grumbling and discontent. Ultimately, it's just the heart saying, I can't or don't want to trust God. I won't relinquish control. I'm not that bad. Friends, let's not be found in the numbers of the grumbling. Rather, by God's grace, through his spirit, may you and I, as his people, be increasingly marked as a people of gratitude. I mean, one of the chief evidences of grace in the Christian life is a deep and abiding gratitude, even in the midst of a broken world. It's the grace of God enabling us to repent. It's the grace of God opening up our eyes, enabling us to receive Jesus. It's by the grace of God you and I are able to see just how dark it really is inside of this heart and just how large the grace and mercy is in the arms of our Savior. It's only by his grace towards us that forgiveness and redemption, salvation and adoption and a promise of a future fullness of joy now and for all of eternity is even possible. What's left What's left if we'll only allow ourselves to see him? What's left but to be grateful? Friends, it starts by receiving Jesus and his kingdom on his terms. It starts by receiving him today, tomorrow, and the next day. The question Jesus is leading that generation to, and the question that Jesus is leading every generation to, is will you do it? Will you do it? Will you receive him and his kingdom today and again tomorrow and the next day on his terms? Let me pray for us together this morning and then we'll respond together. We're gonna sing this week after I pray, but let me pray for us. Good and gracious heavenly father, help us, help me, help me see myself 
Help me to see so clearly and so accurately what I so desperately want to avoid. Help me to see the sin that remains in me for what it is. Help me to see it for what it could be. Lord, help us this morning. Help us, Lord, to not be offended by the truth of our need so that we can be more easily, more quickly, more, more, more anxious to lay down our self-righteousness, to recognize that we need a Savior, one who promises and one who delivers the fullness of joy. Jesus, we need you by your spirit to work in our hearts that we might be able to receive you and your kingdom on your terms. So please, in each of our hearts, do the work that only you can do by bringing us to a place of joyful, repentant faith and confidence in you. We ask this, Jesus, in your name for your glory and our joy. This message was given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. To learn more about the church and to hear sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.